Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeart Radio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. One quick note before we begin, and I'm sure you are absolutely tired of hearing me say it, but I wrote a book. It's a novel called Anatomy, A Love Story, and if you love spooky stories about people in history, I really think you're going to love it. It takes place in 19th century Edinburgh, and it's everything I love, like the reason I made Noble Blood in novel form. So if you haven't pre-ordered, please, please do me a favor and check it out wherever you buy books, your local indie bookstore. It would mean so much. And now, the episode. For the woman we know today as Queen Elizabeth I, growing up, Elizabeth's royal status was far from secure. Her mother, Anne Boleyn, had climbed from lady-in-waiting to queen, only to fall out of favor and lose her head in one of the quickest and most dramatic downfalls in royal history. Little Elizabeth was only three at the time, and it's not quite certain how aware she was when it came to the matter of her mother's death or the matter of her own subsequent loss of status. Perhaps apocryphally, she is said to have asked one of her father's courtiers, Why was I Lady Princess yesterday and Lady Elizabeth today? The former princess became, after the death of her mother, like her older sister Mary, delegitimized. And so Elizabeth grew up all too aware that her status was precarious. Growing up, Elizabeth's households were small and meager, her governess often needed to beg the king that he would provide the funds for his daughter to have proper clothing. Elizabeth was still a child, approaching ten, when her father, King Henry VIII, beheaded his fifth wife, Catherine Howard. Elizabeth had liked Catherine Howard. She had treated her with kindness, but the beautiful teenage queen had flirted, or maybe done more, with men who weren't the king. And so Catherine Howard was imprisoned in the tower, forced, weeping, to lower her head on a black block and wait for the hiss of an axeman's blade. Some say that it was at that moment when Catherine Howard was beheaded that Elizabeth decided that she herself would never marry. She would never subject herself to the mercy of a man. Her own fate was already decided by her father's capricious whims. Why invite that sense of unhappy submission into her life again, voluntarily? By the end of Henry VIII's life, he softened towards his two illegitimate daughters, Mary the Elder and Elizabeth. Though he didn't formally re-legitimize them, he did re-enter them into the line of succession. After Henry's death, the young, sickly Edward would be king, son of Henry and his third wife, Jane Seymour. If Edward didn't have any children, next in line would be Mary, 
If Mary didn't have any children, only then would Elizabeth become queen. The profound uncertainty and insecurity of her status growing up, combined with the sheer unlikeliness that she would ever become queen, gave Elizabeth a pragmatic and independent streak. She didn't trust anyone unless she had to, and even then, she never left her back unguarded. Her loyalties were hard won. Elizabeth knew that her right to rule wasn't inevitable, and she was willing to fight to protect it. Meanwhile, just one country away, Elizabeth's first cousin, once removed, was born to an entirely different sort of childhood. This cousin was Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots, whose father died only six days after her birth. And so, Mary, Queen of Scots, was officially Queen of Scotland from infancy. A quick side note here, Mary is an incredibly common name in the Tudor era, but for this story, the Mary that we'll be talking about from now on is not Mary Tudor, Elizabeth's older sister, but this new, much younger, Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary, Queen of Scots, nine years younger than Elizabeth, was praised throughout her childhood for her good looks and her charm. While her mother ruled Scotland for her, Mary was raised in France alongside the Dauphin, the prince who would one day be her husband, Francis. Because Mary was a queen in her own right, the French court honored and deferred to her. She outranked even the king of France's own daughters. People at court called her la plus parfait, or the most perfect. At 16 years old, her husband became king of France, making Mary the queen of two countries. Royalty was her birthright, and, as she was taught, England was her birthright as well. Mary Stuart was the granddaughter of Henry VIII's older sister, Margaret, and as a Catholic, many, including the French and Mary herself, believed that she was the rightful heir to the throne of England over Henry VIII's illegitimate Protestant daughter, Elizabeth. While in France, Mary used the English lion in her own personal coat of arms, and before her wedding with Francis, she signed an agreement bequeathing Scotland and her claim to the English throne to the French crown if she, Mary, died before Francis and they didn't have children. These two cousins, Mary and Elizabeth, would never meet. They would spend their early lives writing letters to one another, calling each other sweet names, and building upon the diplomatic bonds of family. In theory, they should be allies. They were, as Mary would write, two queens, quote, in one aisle of one language, the nearest kinswoman that each other had. But family only goes so far when your cousin begins to present a threat. From cordial letters, the relationship between Elizabeth Tudor and Mary Stuart stretched and devolved into rivalry and then into something more pernicious and more deadly. We, as a society, have a habit of pitting women against one another. Hilary Duff and Lindsay Lohan, Jennifer and Angelina, Brittany and Christina. 
It's a side effect of misogyny to frame any disagreement between women as a catfight, to preemptively assume that there's only room for one woman at the top, and so all women are, inherently, each other's competition. And so it's no wonder that the comparison between Mary, Queen of Scots, and Elizabeth I has fascinated writers and historians for generations. They were two tall, red-headed queens, one romantic, beautiful, married three times, the other a virgin who presented herself as masculine to retain power. But this is a rivalry that goes far beyond mere tabloid fodder. In the end, one of these two cousins would sign the other's death warrant. Family is important, but not as important as power. I'm Dana Schwartz, and this is Noble Blood. Mary Stuart and her husband Francis were king and queen of France, but only briefly. Francis had always been sickly, and less than two years after he ascended to the throne, he died of possibly one of the more embarrassing ways that a king could go out, of an ear infection in December of 1560. And so, a few months later, the teenage dowager queen returned to her homeland, Scotland, a place she hadn't lived since she was five years old. The 19-year-old Mary now returned with a new name. She had left Scotland as Mary Stuart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, but at some point in France, she changed it to Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, to make it easier for the French to pronounce. At this point in her life, she was reportedly six feet tall and strikingly beautiful, with long red hair. She was well-educated, spoke multiple languages, and incredibly poised. Unfortunately, she was also probably unaware of just how complicated the political and religious situation had become in Scotland during her long absence. Mary was Catholic, but the Protestant movement in Scotland was gaining considerable traction. Mary's half-brother, the Earl of Moray, who had been ruling in Mary's absence since her mother's death, was a Protestant, as was the influential preacher John Knox, who would waste no time issuing fiery sermons denouncing Mary and her sinful ways. As queen, Mary decided that religious tolerance would be the best course of action, and so she built a cabinet of advisors with predominantly Protestant voices. Her focus, even then, was on England, trying to ensure that she was made Elizabeth I's heir, if not just given the throne outright by the people. Back when she was still Queen of France, Mary had refused to ratify the Treaty of Edinburgh in 1560 after English and Scottish Protestant forces had bested the Catholic French in Scotland. In that treaty, the French agreed to formally stop recognizing Mary as the rightful Queen of England, but Mary, refusing to ratify, wouldn't ever stop recognizing herself, at least in theory. Even so, the relationship between the cousins remained cordial. Mary and Elizabeth wrote letters to one another, with Mary always waiting patiently to be formally named as Elizabeth's heir. The two talked about possibly getting together and meeting in person. 
But like distant mutual friends, their plans never came to fruition. Elizabeth was always guarded, on edge, wisely, it would seem, when it came to Mary. She understood that it didn't benefit her at all to name her successor while she was still alive. She once told an advisor, Princes cannot like their own children. Think you that I could love my own winding sheet? In case you don't know, a winding sheet is what you wrap a corpse in. Some people like to frame Elizabeth as vain and jealous of Mary's youth and her beauty, but that seems a little unnecessary to me, a little tabloid. Just politically, to Elizabeth, Mary was a constant and lingering threat. That political threat of Mary as a distant, smiling enemy, just biding her time until she could capture the English throne, perhaps explains why Elizabeth was so outraged when Mary, Queen of Scots, took the matter of her second marriage into her own hands. Without consulting her own advisors, let alone consulting Elizabeth, without even waiting for the Pope to give dispensation, Mary made up her own mind to marry a man named Lord Darnley. The excuse given later was that Mary was just smitten, that she fell so head over heels in love with Darnley that she couldn't wait for anyone to give permission. At least, that was the excuse given to Elizabeth I. Because puppy love or not, it was an incredibly strategic marriage in terms of asserting Mary's claim to the English throne. Consider it the matrimonial equivalent of moving a chess piece into a check position. Mary and Darnley were both grandchildren of Henry VIII's older sister, Margaret Tudor, though Darnley was the product of Margaret's second marriage. If Mary's goal was selecting a husband that highlighted her blood in the English dynasty, Darnley was the perfect fit. Unfortunately, that was the only thing about Darnley that was perfect. In fact, Mary realized pretty quickly that she had saddled herself with a truly awful husband. He was a drunk and lazy man who was jealous and selfish. While Mary was pregnant with their son, Darnley joined in the conspiracy to kill Mary's secretary, a man named David Rizzio, out of jealousy about the rumors that he, Rizzio, not Darnley, was the child's real father. Darnley and his men stabbed Rizzio while Mary watched on screaming. Even with that trauma, their child was miraculously still born healthy, a son who Mary named James. Mary made Elizabeth I, the cousin she had still never met, her son's godmother. The child's father, Darnley, wouldn't be in the picture long. Mary's first husband died with an ear infection whimper. Darnley would die with a boom. Well, a boom, and then a strangulation. Early in the morning of February 10th, 1567, the house in Edinburgh where Darnley had been staying, Kirkofield, was destroyed in an explosion. Darnley was found partially clothed nearby. Apparently, he was unharmed by the actual explosion, but he was dead all the same. Someone had been waiting for him to flee the building and had been there to wring his neck. Pretty much immediately, everyone knew that the murder was the doing of Mary's close advisor, the Earl of Bothwell. 
Bothwell was sent to trial, and he was found innocent, but no one really took any stock in that. It's pretty easy to be found innocent when the queen herself is more than grateful that her terrible husband was dispatched. The murder itself was shocking, but then even more shocking. Only three months after the murder of her husband, Mary married Bothwell, still the case's only suspect. Mary didn't even bother to complete the mandatory mourning period for her deceased husband, terrible as he was. Some say that the pair had conspired together to kill Darnley from the beginning, that they had been lovers the whole time. Other historians maintain that Bothwell kidnapped and then raped Mary in order to entrap her in a marriage. It's impossible to know with any real clarity, but we do know that the optics were awful and that Elizabeth I was watching her cousin in horror. After Mary's marriage to Bothwell, Elizabeth I wrote to her, Madam, to be plain with you, our grief has not been small that in this your marriage so slender consideration has been had that, as we perceive manifestly, no good friend you have in the whole world can like thereof, and if we should otherwise write or say we should abuse you. For how could a worse choice be made for your honor that in such haste to marry such a subject, who besides other and notorious lacks public fame has charged with the murder of your late husband. It was, in short, an international scandal. Some even say that the scandal of a queen quickly marrying the man who likely murdered her husband inspired the plot of Hamlet. But Queen Elizabeth I and Shakespeare weren't the only ones outraged. The combined one-two punch of Darnley's unsolved murder and Mary marrying the primary suspect led to the Protestant factions in Scotland overthrowing Mary, imprisoning her and forcing her to abdicate in favor of her one-year-old son, James, who then became King James VI of Scotland. Mary was imprisoned at Loch Leven Castle, although after a few months in 1568, she managed to escape, and she managed to rally supporters for one final battle, a battle to reclaim the kingdom that was her birthright. Mary was defeated, and so, without a country, she fled to England in the hopes that her, quote, sister queen, Elizabeth, would be her salvation. Mary hoped that Queen Elizabeth might even help her continue to rally support so that she could reclaim the Scottish throne. But no, instead of sending troops to Scotland, or even sending Mary to pro-Catholic France, Queen Elizabeth I welcomed Mary to England and then placed her under de facto house arrest. It was a moral and legal gray area. Mary, even if she did promise to be fully loyal to Elizabeth, and even if Elizabeth believed her, was still a symbolic leader for plenty of Catholics who wanted to kill or overthrow Elizabeth. That became especially true after Pope Pius V issued a papal bull on February 25, 1570, allowing any English Catholic the authority to overthrow their Protestant queen. Mary, for her part, refused to recognize the authority of the English court to try or imprison her. And so, the gray area. Mary was Elizabeth's biggest threat, 
and the longer that Mary was alive, the more Catholic rebels would unite in their fight around her. Queen Elizabeth's advisors all wanted her to execute Mary and make an end to it all. One member of the House of Commons called her the monstrous and huge dragon and mass of the earth. But Elizabeth hesitated. Executions were a messy business. They made martyrs. When Elizabeth had to sign the execution warrant for the Duke of Norfolk, she had signed and then recanted, and then signed again and then recanted a total of three times before the order finally went through. And Mary was an even more complicated case. First, there was her son, the King of Scotland. Over the 19 years that his mother would be imprisoned, James would go from an infant to a grown man. And even though he didn't know his mother at all, and even though he was raised Protestant, Mary was still his mother. And Elizabeth feared, at least in theory, the retaliation of his Scottish forces should she execute Mary. But that issue was easy enough to get around. Because Elizabeth had no children of her own as a virgin queen, James VI of Scotland was the front-runner to get the throne of England when Elizabeth died. Elizabeth could dangle and threaten that throne to make sure James wanted to stay on her good side. But there was a larger, more philosophical reason that Elizabeth was hesitant just to do away with Mary. Though plenty of people believed that Mary had been legally and justly deposed, Elizabeth didn't. In her mind, Mary was still an anointed sovereign. You can't just execute an anointed sovereign. Even though it would eventually become more commonplace, at this time, it was a huge deal. A wife is one thing. A queen in her own right is something entirely different. Queens are anointed by God, and so hated as Mary was among most of England, large as her threat continued to loom, Elizabeth couldn't bring herself to pull the metaphorical trigger. Until, of course, she no longer had a choice. Though Mary wasn't supposed to be communicating with the outside world, she was slipped letters that were smuggled in the watertight casing inside the stopper of a beer barrel. Unbeknownst to Mary and her supporters, though, Elizabeth and her spymasters were privy to the scheme. And so, even though the Catholic loyalist Anthony Babington wrote his letter to Mary, Queen of Scots, in code, Elizabeth's ciphers decoded it. And so, they read the details of what would come to be known as the Babington Plot to overthrow Elizabeth, in a letter that asked Mary for her advice on how to ensure, quote, the dispatch of the usurping competitor. Elizabeth's spies also got their hands on Mary's reply when she signed what would become her own death sentence, a letter in which she wrote, quote, Let the great plot commence. Of course, one can't really blame Mary. She had been imprisoned for coming up on two decades, for no crime with no trial, close to half of her young life. Someone loyal writing to her to try to help her escape and reclaim power must have seemed like a no-brainer. Thomas Phillips, the cipher, decoded and copied Mary's letter, adding a short P.S. to Mary's reply, asking, Hey, quick question, just curious, would you mind telling me the names of everyone else involved in this plot? No reason. 
But before that letter was even answered, the arrests started. Babington and his co-conspirators were arrested and imprisoned and sentenced to death to be hanged, disemboweled, drawn, and quartered. Apparently, the first two executions were so gruesome that Queen Elizabeth made a quick change for the rest of them, saying that from then on, the men were to be hanged until, quote, quite dead before the rest of the mutilation. It took a few more months for Mary to be tried and found guilty of collusion. Even with the smoking gun of her letter to Babington, Mary continued to proclaim her innocence. Elizabeth's advisors knew how prickly Elizabeth would be when it came to actively ordering the execution. Her closest minister, Cecil, summoned Parliament so that the pressure wouldn't be Elizabeth's alone. It was, quote, to make the burden better borne and the world abroad better satisfied. Elizabeth's secretary, Davison, slipped the death warrant to Elizabeth in the middle of a large pile of other things for her to sign. And as soon as she signed it, knowing that the queen could change her mind at any moment, Davison rushed the warrant to the rest of the council and got the execution moving. Mary, Queen of Scots, was executed on February 8, 1587, at 44 years old, after 19 years of imprisonment, in which she was moved from one remote English castle to another. Mary walked slowly and confidently to the stage that had been draped in black fabric for the occasion of her death. She walked with her back straight and her head high, letting the light catch her profile as she stood and paused before climbing the stairs. Even though her famous looks had faded, there was still something striking about her. Her height, her red hair, her steely eyes. Mary accepted the hand of her longtime jailer who had been with her for so many years as she was climbing the stairs. I thank you, sir, she said. This is the last trouble I shall ever give you. Over 100 people had come to the great hall of Fotheringay Castle to watch Mary's execution. From the crowd, a man rose and shouted to Mary, I am the Dean of Peterborough. It is not too late to embrace the true faith. Yea, the reformed religion with hath... Mary, moments from death, interrupted him with a raised hand. Good Mr. Dean, trouble not yourself any more about this matter. I was born in this religion, have lived in this religion, and am resolved to die in this religion. When the executioner stepped forward, he knelt and asked for Mary's forgiveness. I forgive you and all the world with all my heart, for I hope this death will make an end to all my troubles, she said. Personally, I can't imagine that I would be facing the man who would be removing my head with the same grace. The executioner then gestured for Mary to remove her large black cloak. He offered to help, but Mary shook her head. She gestured for her ladies-in-waiting to come assist her. They unbuttoned her black outer gown and, to the gasps of the crowd, revealed that beneath, Mary was wearing a dress in bright crimson, the color of Catholic martyrdom. Mary kissed her crucifix and prayer book and handed her lady-in-waiting a handkerchief 
so that she could tie it as a blindfold. The lady's hands were shaking so much that Mary tied the blindfold herself. Gracefully, Mary went to her knees and laid her head on the smooth block. This is where the grace of the execution ends. From here, it becomes a grim comedy. The executioner swung his blade down and missed. He grazed only the hairs on the side of Mary's neck. Mary was heard to have muttered, Sweet Jesus. The executioner tried again. He made contact this time, but didn't get quite through her neck. He was forced to saw through the sinew with the axe until the head disconnected. God save Queen Elizabeth, the frazzled executioner shouted, grabbing the severed head by its hair so that he could hold it up to the crowd. He didn't realize that Mary had been wearing a red wig. With the executioner only holding the wig, Mary's head fell, and the head of a gray-haired woman lolled on the stage, lips still moving. The crowd gasped. But the chaos didn't even end there. From the folds of Mary's skirts came a yelp. In her dress, Mary had smuggled in her dog, Geddon, to the execution. Geddon, distraught, began howling and circling the corpse. The angry Protestant man in the audience, the one who had heckled Mary earlier, ran up to the stage and grabbed the dog by the nape of its neck. Remember, John Knox had prophesied that dogs would drink her blood, he shouted. He shoved the dog's face into Mary's blood. Drink, ye cur! Instead, the dog bit the man's hand. When the dust settled, there were to be no relics left of Mary, Queen of Scots, nothing for curious onlookers to keep as mementos or sell, no items for Catholics to help turn her into a martyr. Mary's clothes, her prayer books, her everything were burned in the courtyard. Bonfires throughout England were lit in celebration of the Catholic Jezebel's death, but Elizabeth was inconsolable. The queen claimed that she had signed the death warrant, but had never actually meant for it to be enacted. It was only supposed to be kept in reserve for future threats. Elizabeth blamed her secretary, Davison, but most people didn't quite believe her outrage. The historian William Camden wrote that Elizabeth conceived or pretended great grief and anger against Davison. But in Camden's second edition, he thought better of his accusation of pretending and removed that word. Still, she was queen, and so Elizabeth put Davison on trial and were of London, fining him 10,000 marks, although his sentence would ultimately be remitted. However Elizabeth felt about how it happened, the deed was done. Mary, Queen of Scots, was dead. Sixteen years later, Elizabeth herself would die, and it would be Mary's son, James, who would finally become king of both Scotland and England. King James VI of Scotland and the first of England, the man who united the two kingdoms. Though Elizabeth and Mary never met, today the two women are buried mere feet apart, together in Westminster Abbey.
That's the tragic story of Mary, Queen of Scots, and her relationship with her cousin, Elizabeth. But keep listening after a brief sponsor break to hear a little bit more about one of Mary's more unusual modern legacies. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. It feels a little bit stereotypical of me to be relating golf to the story of the Queen of Scots, but by all accounts, Mary loved to play golf, or as she learned it as a child in France, pell-mell. In Scotland, Mary had a vacation house at St. Andrews, often considered to be the oldest golf course in the world. When Mary or any royal golfer hit the links, their bags were carried by military cadets, it's believed that Mary gave those cadets a nickname, one that carries on to this day. When Mary played golf, her bags were carried by a man that she called a caddy. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Menke. The show is written and hosted by Dana Schwartz, Executive producers include Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali and Trevor Young. Noble Blood is on social media at Noble Blood Tales, and you can learn more about the show over at NobleBloodTales.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.